0: I invite you to open a Bible to Matthew chapter 28, if it's one of the Bibles in the pews, it's page 835, as we look again at the uh, Great Commission. And I, I chose this because our missions conference is next weekend. I hope you look over the uh, announcement in the bulletin about the missions conference and see that we have uh, gatherings on a Friday evening. There's a, a free meal uh, here for the Friday evening session, but uh, we need we need you to register so we can have a count. You can register through the app or online, uh, and it gives you all the information for Saturday morning and uh, what's happening Saturday evening and then uh, for Sunday. Next Sunday, all the Sunday schools, the adult Sunday schools, will gather together in the fellowship hall uh, where we hear the missionaries. So I hope that you'll take advantage of this next Friday night through Sunday morning. Matthew 28. Jesus has been raised from the grave uh, for over 40 days. He has uh, appeared to a variety of people in a variety of settings, hundreds of people, maybe a couple of thousand total. And now we see that he and the 11 disciples proceed to Galilee. And beginning in verse 16 of Matthew 28, it says, Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. The 11 disciples are with Jesus. These are the men to whom he has spoken these words that we find here, but they apply to us as well. They had uh, watched and listened to him and learned from him, and as a result, they had been transformed by him. Jesus begins this great commission, is what we call it, with a claim. And for many years, I, I was taught this passage of scripture through the ministry that led me to Christ as a youngster. And this was talked about at every one of our gatherings, I think, was the Great Commission. And I really overlooked the claim. The part, the claim being all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. But it wasn't until later that I realized the command is all based on the claim. If the claim is not true, there's no way we can even attempt to follow and obey what he says here. Let me explain what I mean. The commandment rests upon Jesus' claim that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. The claim makes the commandment possible. Let me give an illustration that helps me understand it and maybe it will help you as well. Let's say after the service today, you and I are talking, and you tell me you need a car. Your car is broken down. And I say, well, here's what I want you to do. want you to go down to one of these car dealerships on Riverside Drive, go to the Ford dealership and pick a car or a truck or whatever you want, get the keys and drive it home. Now there's the command and you'll probably end up in jail or in big trouble if you try to do that. But if I start this way, look uh, I own the Ford dealership. I own it all. I'm the sole owner. Go down there and pick out a vehicle. Get the keys; it's yours. Now, what? In, assuming the claim is truthful, <clears throat> you're enabled to obey it <clears throat> because of the truth of the claim. <clears throat> the claim makes obeying the commandment possible. But Jesus's claim is a whole lot bigger than a car dealership. All authority. And it's comprehensive in heaven and on earth. Every place fits under these headings. Jesus has all authority, total, complete authority to do whatever he desires, whenever he desires, in all of creation, in heaven and on earth. And because of this claim, he gives a command. And the command comes in verse 19, or it begins there. Therefore, go... make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the father and of the son and of the holy spirit and teaching them to obey everything i've commanded you now it sounds like a whole lot of commands mixed together go make disciples baptizing teaching but it's really one the one command is make disciples and the other verbs like go and baptizing and teaching The grammar shows that they are modifiers. They are participles that you could read it like, as you are going, it makes the assumption we will go, make disciples. How do you make disciples? By baptizing and by teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. So a disciple is a learner, a follower, a student. Every time we learn from another person, whether it's a sports lesson or whether it's a music lesson, Uh, You are, in a sense, following that person. You're becoming a disciple, so to speak, of that person. Spiritually, a disciple is a follower of Christ. We, We learn about our spiritual gifts. We seek to follow him. We seek to implement the means of growth in our own lives. And we experience life transformation. Those are all true of a disciple. He's telling us to make disciples of all nations. Now, this is a big task. It was a big task for them at that time. It doesn't mean every person on the planet, of which we should be thankful. I was surprised last night. I thought the world population was still closer to seven billion, but now, right now, it's closer to eight billion. And there's such a difference between a million and a billion. If you went back in time a million seconds, that would be two years ago. If you go back in time a billion seconds, that's 2,000 years ago. The people who studied missiology the study of missions around the world and demographics tell us that maybe as many as half half of the people in the world have never heard about Christ now that shocks those of us in America you can turn on the radio and you can hear or a podcast or whatever and you can hear Bible teachers and all day long but that's that's the exception rather than the rule but i want to tell you some very good news at the end of this of the advancement that it's making So, he says, make disciples of all nations. And you think of the difficulty of this task. Uh, Do you know the stated goal of the Coca-Cola Company? It is this. A Coke in the hand of every person on the planet. A Coke in the hand of every person on the planet. Now, imagine trying to carry that out. It's simple. It's clear. Not much to debate there. But think how difficult logistically, politically, financially, all very difficult. So we have these difficulties in obeying this great commission that Christ gave. But I think it will help as we understand what he means by nations. Christianity is a missionary faith. He assumes we're going. Go, therefore, as you are going is a way we could understand it. Now I want to give you some categories that may surprise some of you. But I hope it will... Help with the understanding. And this is in stark contrast to the categories about skin color that have been so explosive the past two to three years in public debate. When we turn to the Bible and you see how people are categorized, it's never according to skin color. The Bible says there's one race, not many. It's the human race. So there's an umbrella. There's an umbrella of of the of what we would call all people, and that's humanity. The Bible uses that, or mankind, humankind, however you want to say it. Then the group beneath, or the grouping, the subgroup beneath that is nations slash peoples. The Bible uses that term. What's a nation? A nation is a geographic group of those who share common socio-political identity and it's defined by ancestry, language, land, and government. That's a nation. Then you come down from that, from humanity to nation or slash peoples, and you come to tribes. Those involve kinship, where people are related. Then you go to a subcategory of that, and it's families or clans. It's a smaller kinship. And then finally, we get to a term where we would use family. The New Testament rarely uses the term family. You know what it uses? Household. Because it was rare for someone to live just, say, marriage and children. It would have been extended family. And it might be other. It might include servants. It might include the foreigner who who comes into the household. So we have these groups. All humanity, nations. Tribes, families or clans, and then the lowest is households. What is the word Jesus is using here? Nations. He's using that second category. A group bound together with language and ancestry and land and government. Now, let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. This is very important. And I think it's very exciting when you, when you seek to understand what the Great Commission is dealing with. It is not that Jesus was saying, take this message to every geographical nation, as though once a missionary reaches the United States and someone believes, then the Great Commission is fulfilled in the United States. That's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about geographical boundaries. He's talking about people groups. Now there's an app or website you can go to, and each day it will give you a different unreached people to pray for. Yesterday on Unreached of the Day, that's the name of it, Unreached of the Day, was the Yazidis. Now I first became aware of the Yazidis back about eight years ago. If you remember when ISIS went into Iraq and into Syria, one of the groups they were trying to murder, all of them, were the Yazidis. And many fled the country; they ran for their lives. And I remember seeing video, and you would have seen it too, of some of our helicopters rescuing people, the Yazidis, and getting them out of there. Now, literally, saved their lives. Now, where have they settled? Coming out of Iraq and out of Syria, they've settled in Germany. There are 51,000 Yazidis in Germany. Now, they have a common language; they speak Northern Kurdish. And their religion is, is not, it's kind of a blend. There's some drawn from Islam, some from other religions, a little bit of Judaism, uh, hardly any Christianity. It, it, so it's a mixture. So for centuries they've been persecuted by other Muslim groups. So they speak their own language, they have a common ancestry. And now they have located in Germany. They found refuge there. They're refugees. And the prayer for the day is to reach this group. So as far as the Great Commission is concerned, the Yazidis in Germany have not yet, the Great Commission has not been fulfilled as far as pertaining to the Yazidis in Germany. you're getting the picture, for those that aren't familiar with this kind of terminology, it's people groups. So what will it, well, I'm going to come back to that. I'm going to come back in just a moment. So we aim to make disciples in every nation. And Jesus is assuming here kind of three calls, three calls of going. First, there'll be a call to cross cultural missions. Now back to the Yazidis. Someone, some Christians probably already have and are will have to cross a cultural boundary to go or a cultural obstacle to minister and reach and fulfill the great commission with the Yazidis. Now, they're very hostile right now toward anyone trying to convert them to anything else. They feel it's unfaithfulness to their own group, which is not unusual. But inroads right now are being made primarily through works of mercy and compassion, of people trying to help them with food and water and shelter and so forth, and they're becoming more receptive. That is an example of cross-cultural missions. They will not be reached if you and I go about our regular daily business. If we just say, well, I'm going to live my Christian life right here and all Christians do that, then that is an example of a people group that will not be reached because they're cut off, in a sense, from others. So the first call is to cross-cultural missions. A second call is to church missions. Things we can do as a church that we can't do individually. Church planting in middle Georgia. Church planting in other parts of the world. I don't know how many churches we've planted through the years First Presbyterian has. Uh, I've never figured it out. It's all over the country. It's all over the world in, in many places. It's all over Macon at, at different times. But those are, that's a call for church missions. And the last is a call to personal missions. Well, let me back up. Church missions. I was asked by a man from Korea a few years ago Uh, who lived here for a little while. He said, why aren't there more Asians in First Presbyterian Church? I said, well, that's a good question. I don't really have the answer. But I do know this. (laughs) Usually a church reflects the demographics of what's around it. And I don't see many Asians around Macon. Not that many. And usually, and I'm not, they're in restaurants. And they own restaurants. But if you want to buy Asian food, Uh, really good? Where do you go? You go to Atlanta. Uh, There was a Korean market here, but it's closing then. I said, there's a Chinese congregation that meets at the Baptist Church in Byron. I think their services are in English. There's a Korean church, PCA, that's off of Anthony Road, over near Eisenhower. I said, I tried to contact the pastor for lunch, but my understanding is there's no English. He doesn't speak English. So I think if I were to go back to him and keeping this principle of people groups, the way to reach Asians, unless they're trying to be completely assimilated into American culture like us, it won't be the way we reach this. It will need to take on a different identity, not to water down the gospel, but it will take a different approach than reaching people that live in my neighborhood, off of Zebulon Road. we call to personal mission. So cross-cultural missions, church missions, and personal missions, where we identify our, identify our own circles of influence, sharing the claims of Christ with people we come across. I, I, was, I was trained as a young Christian that personal evangelism is the normal Christian life. I'm so grateful for that. And I still try to engage people in conversation as situations come up during the day, wherever I am. And I try to look for open doors. And it's not because I'm a preacher or I'm paid to do this. Remember the old saying, pastors are paid to be good. The rest, everyone else is good for nothing. <laughs> but I, uh, I have an end as a pastor, cause it's very common, especially with men to say, what do you do? Sometimes I'd rather say you don't want to know. But in a lot of cases, I say, well, I'm a pastor. Where? Down at First Presbyterian Church. And you'll always get this. Where's that? I say, oh, it's across from the Grand Opera House. Yeah, I think I've seen that. Everybody thinks people know where their church is. They don't. (laughs) They don't go there normally. But I have the, and I typically ask, do you have a church home? I don't say are you a member of a church because in the South, most people's name is on some roll of a church, but that doesn't mean anything. I'm trying to ask, are you engaged, are you involved with a local church? So that gives me a little bit of an inroad. Sometimes there's more conversation, sometimes there's none, and it ends right there. But at least I had the opportunity to identify with Christ and open the door if the person wants to talk about it. So you and I... that. We should pray, and you say, well, every time I try to talk to somebody about Christ, it just doesn't come out the way I want, or I I don't feel, I don't have any confidence in that area, or just, you know, I'm afraid they're going to ask me something I don't know. Those are common fears, but it's a great area just to to walk by faith uh, with that. So trying to build rapport, looking for those opportunities, praying each morning. Billy Graham, I love what he said about the present. He said, the evangelistic harvest is always urgent. The destiny of men and of nations is always being decided. Every generation is strategic. We are not responsible for the past generation, and we cannot bear the full responsibility for the next one, but we have our generation. God will hold us responsible as to how well we fulfill our responsibilities to this age and take advantage of our opportunities. I love history. I try to mention history in the, in the sermons from time to time, but we don't live in the 1800s. We don't live in the 1950s. We are in 2022 and we have an obligation to this generation, to this time in history, not to 2100 or whatever the next will be, but right now. And that's what he was saying. So we teach also by baptizing. I mean, we make disciples by baptizing and teaching. But notice what he says. You teach all I have commanded you. When there was so much unrest here in America, uh, 18 months ago and, uh, uh, and so much was going on in division in churches and division on social media between Christians and I for the first time I saw negative things posted saying oh you're only interested in the Great Commission not in helping people you're a Great Commission Church y'all don't care about justice and I thought boy that's a misunderstanding What are we supposed to teach? Everything I have commanded you. It's not the minimum of truth to the maximum number of people. It's the maximum amount of truth to the maximum of people. So where is it that we learn about loving my neighbor? It's learning about, as I learn all that Christ commanded. Where do I learn about helping the oppressed? It's from learning what Christ commanded. The more I learn what Christ commanded, the more engaged I'll be with the very things you're wanting to see. So there's no opposition here. There's no conflict between the Great Commission and being engaged with cultural change. It's just we've got to get people in the kingdom before they have the gospel of the kingdom. Now you look confused. I hope not. So that's the purpose is to make disciples. And then look at his promise in verse 20. I will be with you. I will be with you the one who has authority over all heaven and earth, he says, I will be with you. This is what Jeremiah 31 said, I will be their God and they shall be my people. How long does this promise last? Did he just mean those 11 disciples? No, it's us, it's it's us today. um, When we pray for laborers for the harvest, he's with us. When we try to have personal witness to others, he's with us when we corporately as a church or cross-cultural missions that we'll hear more about this next weekend. He is with us. How long? Till the end of the age. What is our identity in Christ? It's not only that we're sinners saved by grace. uh, And it's not just that we're looking for God to make our lives better while we're here. He's given us a mission. Uh, Our identity is tied to the fact that Jesus has given you and me as Christians a mission that all of us have been called to participate in. We are called out people to whom the King of Kings has arranged this mission. I want to read you some encouraging things before we come to the Lord's table. And, and this is from missionfrontiers.org. That, that, I used to get the paper journal. It's been around about 40 years now. It's all online. Missionfrontiers.org. If you don't write down anything else from this sermon, missionfrontiers.org. And you can learn more about unreached peoples there than, than about anywhere else. But I was reading an overview of the things that have happened over the past 10 years, or summary, and some of the great things happening in parts of the world after, uh, well, let me, let me just read you. These are words from, from uh, David Taylor. The result of all this research and mobilization has been nothing short of stellar. The last 40 years have seen more Muslims, Buddhists, and Hindus come to know Christ than in all previous centuries combined. Did you hear that? The last 40 years have seen more Muslims, Buddhists, and Hindus come to know Christ than in all previous centuries combined. Dozens of church planting movements have been initiated among the major unreached mega-peoples. A mega-people is those who have over a million in population. Where just two decades before, the ground had remained untilled for literally centuries. In other words, things are happening right now and have been for the past 10 years that were not happening at all for hundreds of years in, in parts of Asia. The first major breakthrough in the Muslim bloc came in South Asia where at least half a million Muslim background believers have come to faith in Christ. Next door to South Asia in Iran, Iran right now is where Christianity is growing the fastest if you didn't know that. Uh, Forty years ago it was South Korea, but today it's Iran. In Iran, a strong underground church movement continues to emerge with thousands of house fellowships multiplying throughout the country. Surveys in the country indicate that Christian satellite broadcasting in Farsi, which began in the year 2000, is being viewed by well over half of the population. Half of the population in Iraq can get Christian broadcasting in their own language. Equally impressive are the results of radio and satellite broadcasting throughout the Arab world. One ministry called Sat-7 has a regular audience of 8.5 million people. In the Buddhist world, two significant breakthroughs occurred among the Khmer and the Mongolians. In Cambodia, the church exploded from just a handful of believers 20 years ago to over 400,000 today. In Mongolia, the church grew from a few isolated believers to over 50,000 in 200 established fellowships in the same period. Let me close this last paragraph he mentions. In the last decade, missionary deployment among unreached peoples has increased at a rapid pace, effectively doubling the number of missionaries among the least reached. Doubling. In 1980, the ratio of missionaries to Muslims was one per million. One per million to Muslims. Now, it's one per 100,000. Most of these missionaries are non-Western. They're not from the U.S., many of which are from nearby or related peoples. Although much work remains to be done, the significance of an increasing number of believers among the world's non-Christian peoples cannot be underestimated. What this means is that the cultural distance dividing unreached peoples from the gospel is shrinking. And momentum is gaining and listen to this last sentence in this in this article for the first time in history the very possibility of reaching all peoples with the gospel in one generation is well within sight wouldn't it be wonderful wouldn't it be wonderful to say I was part of the generation where God fulfilled the Great Commission for every nation let's pray together Father thank you that we are here because somebody in the past took this Commission seriously and they spake, spoke to us. It may have been a relative, may have been a, a parent, may have been a brother or sister, may have been a pastor or a youth director or someone like that, it may have been a Christian teacher or coach. But we're grateful for that. We pray that you would rekindle in us an understanding of the mission you've given to us individually and as a church, and even use next weekend toward that end. In Christ's name, amen.